Father, we just confess our wanderings this week. Um, even though you have came and sought us and brought us into your house, we confess that we still like to wander. And so, Lord, would you further uh, bind us to yourself? And I'm so refreshed this morning that you bind us to yourself, you fetter us, you chain us to yourself, not with anger or wrath, but with your grace and your goodness. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you move among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Have you ever wondered? You're good. You're good. Have you ever wondered what does God want you to do? Have ever thought, I wonder what's God's will for me in this particular circumstances? If you've ever wondered about God's will, if you've ever wondered about a decision you're going to, you had to make and what God uh, wanted us to do about it, this is a helpful passage that we're going to look at together today. Because the reality is it's, it's one thing to know it's, it's one thing for God to have a desire or a plan for a certain circumstances, for, but, but it's another thing entirely for us to know that, and then it's another thing entirely to live into that. And this morning, we're coming to a really short, really interesting passage in Acts 13. It's just three verses, and no, that does not mean, oh, since it's a holiday weekend, it must be a shorter sermon, so we'll get out of here. No, no, we, we must not have met. Um, because this passage in Acts 13 as, gives us an opportunity to look under the hood at how the early church shared life and how they made decisions together. And so let's look at Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene and Menaean, the childhood companion of King Antipas, and Saul. Now, we know him by Paul at this point. The action of this passage focuses in on the church in Antioch, which is quickly becoming the most influential church on the ground of the early church in this moment. Antioch is the first multi-ethnic church, uh, and you even get that vibe as referenced here in verse one of chapter 13, that Simeon is called the black man. He is of African descent. Uh, Lucius is from Menaeus or Cyrene. And Paul and Barnabas are at the center of this church. They've been called on especially to give shape and leadership to the people of Jesus in this place because of its uniqueness. Every church prior to this moment have been Jews who now believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're ethnically and culturally very similar. But now we have uh, this church in Antioch with people from all over the world, Jew and Gentile, uh, in community together. And inside of this community, in addition to Paul and Barnabas, there are leaders that here Luke calls prophets and teachers. 
Now, in Ephesians 4, I'll just read it to you. Paul says this. He says, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So by the way, my biblical job description, according to Ephesians 4.12, is, is to equip you in ministry. It is not to do ministry on your behalf as your hired hand, but to equip you to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of you. In verse 13, Paul says, this will continue, this equipping will all continue until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. In Ephesians 4, Paul names five gifts that Jesus gives the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. It's fair to assume that all five of these gifts, all five of these functions, would have been present in the church in Antioch, but Luke names prophets and teachers for a particular reason. Teachers are the people who instruct. They equip the body with doctrine. Prophets are those who know. They have an ear for what God is saying to the church and a passion to call the church into obedience to what God is saying. So here we have Antioch, this multi-ethnic church, which means everyone is constantly violating each other's unspoken rules. Everybody is constantly stepping on each other's toes. I mean, in some cultures, it is polite to slurp your soup. We don't do that. In some cultures, it is polite to belch or to break wind loudly during the meal as a compliment to the chef. We don't do that. But just imagine we're having a potluck at the church in Antioch, and you're sitting next to somebody who's just ripping them out. Right? And it's stinky in your area, and you're thinking, I, you're thinking, it's important that they know this is not me, is what you're thinking, right? Uh, and the person next to you thinking, of course they want you to know it's you. This is a compliment. So imagine you have, I mean, those are just the small things, right? So they're constantly stepping on each other's toes, and so they need the teachers to step in and give some, like, structure and teaching and instruction on, here's how to be family, they need to call the church to the center, which is not the differences between our cultures, but the center of Jesus and the doctrine of who he is. If you forgive the cliche, the teachers are important in Antioch because they're helping the church keep the main thing the main thing, right? Don't get distracted by who's eating meat sacrificed to idols and who's not. Let's just zero in on who Jesus is. As they navigate those realities, they need teachers, but it seems that the prophets are also going to play an important role uh, because of what happens next in verse 2. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the special work to which I have called them. Let me read that again. One day, as the men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. The leaders in the church of Antioch are worshiping and fasting. Now, the way that the text structures it, it doesn't seem that they are worshiping and fasting for any particular reason. There's not a crisis that has led them to worship and pray. Verse 3 says they're praying, worship, pray, and fast. That's not a crisis that they're responding to. 
Instead, it seems that this was a predictable pattern within the leadership of the church in Antioch to fast together regularly, to pray together regularly, and to worship together regularly. By this time in church history, uh, Christians were fasting twice a week. We talked about this back in our fasting series. And so on one of these days when they're fasting, on one of these days when they are worshiping together, uh, God speaks to them. Martin Luther says, uh, Martin Luther says, those who sing, pray twice. Those who sing, pray twice. These practices, fasting, worship, prayer, what do they have in common? They open us to God. It's why we begin our gatherings with singing, right? Because it recalibrates us out of kind of the pattern of thinking that we've been living with all week, out of the pattern of thinking of discouragement or frustration or hurt or pride, and it recalibrates us to who God is. In Psalm 73, we read of this man who was uh, spent most of his week grumbling about how the wicked, or non-Christians we might say, seem to get ahead in life in a way that Christians don't. And he says, then I went into your sanctuary, then I went to worship, and I finally understood. Worship recalibrates us into who God is and what he is for. In Acts 13, they are worshiping, and the word Luke uses, this is really important, the word worship in the New Testament means serving the Lord. It means ministering to the Lord. When we worship, we respond as God reveals himself. We ascribe him worth. The English word worship literally comes from an old English word that means worth-ship. It means applying and ascribing worth. We give God praise because he is praiseworthy. We give, ascribe God worth to him in song because he is worthy of it. And as we worship, our hearts are, and our minds were recalibrated to God and what he says and what his purposes are and his ways for us. When we worship and when we ascribe to God the praise and glory that is his, we find ourselves becoming attuned once again to his heart. It's like throughout the week, we, on our cell phones, we go from five bars spiritually to four bars to three bars to two bars to one, and then sometimes we have a really bad week and we're like on roaming, right? And worship is the way that we kind of reconnect and come back to all five bars. We are attuned again to his heart as we are drawn back into what is true and good and are right. And so as they fast and as they worship and as they pray, verse 3 says they're praying, they hear from God. They, these practices open us to God and they hear, Paul and Barnabas, the other leaders of the church, they hear God. They hear God saying, set aside Barnabas and Paul for a special work. I think this is why, in fact, I don't just think it, every commentator I read this week thinks it, that the reason that Luke is so specific that the prophets are present in this conversation is because it's the prophets who say, while they're worshiping and fasting and praying, hey, I think that God might be saying we're supposed to set Barnabas and Paul aside for a special work. It's the prophets that come to that conclusion. They're the ones that say, hey, y'all, I think that the Lord is saying we're supposed to set Barnabas and Saul aside for something. 
So they hear from God in verse 2, and in verse 3, they weigh what is said. It says in verse 3, so they just heard from the Lord, so after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. After hearing from God through the prophets, they, they fast and they pray even more. Why do they fast? Why do they pray? Why don't they say, okay, well, that's what the Lord said. Let's send them off. They don't act immediately because the way that we respond to prophetic words is to weigh them. Now, this is the difference between teaching and a teaching ministry and a prophetic ministry. If I, here's, here's the reality. If I have exegeted this passage, and exegete is a fancy word that means if I have studied this passage and gotten to the core meaning that Luke meant when he wrote it, and if I have clearly communicated that to you this morning, your job when Scripture is properly execute, ex, exegeted and preached, your job, do you know what your job is? To obey it, period. I'm not saying that to like become a maniacal cult leader. I'm just saying that that is our faithful response to a passage of Scripture expounded appropriately. We just obey it. But a prophetic word is different. A prophetic word is not obeyed. It is weighed. It is weighed. 1 Corinthians 14 says, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. We weigh prophecy. We ask ourselves, does this sound like something God would say? We say, does this sound true? We say, does this resonate with Scripture or contradict it? We bring a prophetic word to community and we say, does this sound true? About a, about a year ago, um, Steph and I were, felt like we had kind of heard from the Lord saying, okay, and I keep saying this to you because I just don't want it to be a surprise. 2020 into early, into the, about the first half of 2021 is about up and in, growing in our relationship as a church with the Father, higher temperature in worship, more prayer, these kinds of things, and in, more community, more love, more caring for one another, more investing in one another, more mentoring, more all of these kinds of things. But come fall of 2021, we're going to increase the temperature on out. We did not come to our church and say, thus saith the Lord, obey it. What we did is we went to multiple people who said, yeah, that sounds true. Yeah, I think that's right. People prayed about it. We weighed it together as a community. In contrast to once I was at an event where someone said, I feel like I have a word from you and went on this little kind of like comparing something, Wizard of Oz, something, and I was like, yeah, that has nothing to do with me. I'm glad you shared it with me, but that has nothing to do with me. Um, and so... We, what we, weigh, we weigh prophetic words for confirmation, and, this is, and, and, and the way that the early church weighs the prophetic word found in verse 2 is through more fasting and prayer in verse 3. They fast and pray. And do you know why they really need to weigh this prophetic word? Because sending Paul and Barnabas out from leadership of this church is the most strategically suicidal thing that they could do. It is pure foolishness to send Paul and Barnabas away from this church. Why? Because Paul and Barnabas have the gifts and graces. They have the character and competency necessary and needed to help this church shape and grow. 
They needed to weigh this prophetic word so they didn't default to worldly wisdom and say, no, 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 that can't be what the Lord said. Um, Sorry, so-and-so, that was just the bad fish you ate last night. We're not sending Paul and Barnabas away. Here's what we'll do instead. Paul and Barnabas, we're going to start, they're going to start a ministry school, and they're going to lead some small groups, and they'll train some people. We'll keep them, and we'll send those other people out. Here's, here's how, here's what is so striking to me about this process is that they come to what looks on the surface to be a foolish decision. It is insanity to send Paul and Barnabas away. They're the most strategic leaders the church has, the most gifted leaders the church has. But yet, 1 Corinthians 1 says, the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. Let me just say that to you again. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. Christians are being called fools in five different arenas in our culture right now. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. They weigh what is said and look at what they do they sacrifice. They sacrifice. They commission Paul and Barnabas with the laying on of hands, and they send them on their way. They make a huge sacrifice, and it makes no tactical sense, but it is a sacrifice that God rewards, because by the end of the book of Acts, the church in Antioch, through Paul and Barnabas, is responsible for starting dozens of Jesus communities across the Mediterranean world, and hundreds, if not and hundreds and tens of thousands, really, of people have placed their faith in Jesus because they sacrificed and sent Paul and Barnabas out. In these three verses, we find a helpful decision-making model. In these three verses, we find a helpful decision-making model. For personally, in our marriages, in our families, on our teams. Frankly, I I did this and I was like, wow, this sounds a lot like a process that we went through as an oversight team three months ago, two months ago. The decision-making model in Acts 13, one through three, has three steps. Begin with worship, prayer, and fasting to open yourself to God. Discern what God is saying by weighing what you hear and sense. Finally, this is the hard part. Take whatever sacrificial step of obedience God asks you to take. Open yourself to God through worship, prayer, fasting. Discern what God is saying by weighing what you hear and sense. Take the sacrificial step of obedience. Three steps. Worship, discern, sacrifice. I want to just kind of double-click on each of these for just a couple of minutes. This decision-making model begins with worship, prayer, and fasting. Remember, fasting, it is not a tool that we take up to beat God, an answer that we want out of God, right? Fasting is not the coin that we put in the gumball machine to get God to do what we want. Fasting is how we respond to a grievous, sacred moment. And the grievous, sacred moment is, I don't know what to do. So I fast. And what all of these practices, worship, prayer, fasting, have in common is they open us to God as we, and this is key, humble ourselves before him. Worship is an act of humility. Worship 
is an act by which we ascribe to God things that are true about him, but that we have spent the week trying to convince ourselves and others are true about ourselves. Worship reminds us of our proper posture in front of God, that we are owed to grace, how great a debtor. A debtor, not a hero. One of the most concerning things I hear from Christians on a regular, regular basis, one of the most concerning things I hear from Christians on a regular basis is a critique of worship. We measure worship by what we like, or by how we feel, and my friends, that is a categorical mistake. Worship is not a matter of what you like, it is a matter of what God likes. Because the word used here is serving the Lord or ministering to the Lord, and when we walk out of a worship experience and we critique it, and I'm not saying that there's not a conversation about excellence to be had, but when we critique it, I did like this, I don't like this, I didn't... I, the song was too fast, the song was too slow, this song, this, that, that. When we do all of this, what we're actually doing is we're ministering to ourselves. We're serving ourselves. Francis Chan, an author, tells the story of when he was pastoring regularly, someone came up to him after worship and said, um, I didn't really like worship today. You've heard, some of you have heard me say this before. I didn't really like worship today. And he said, well, that's okay because we weren't worshiping you. When we view worship as a product to consume and therefore something we don't like or do like, we make ourselves the subject of worship, which removes its humbling practice. It does not open us to God and his voice and his presence. It defeats the purpose. Because I'm so consumed with thinking what I do like or what I don't like and how I wish it was this way and how I wish it was that. Instead of Thinking to myself, I'm going to set these conversations. Here's what you need to do in those moments, because there's moments where you're singing a song, and you're like, I don't know if I like this. You call yourself back to, it's not about me. These things are true about God, so I'm going to sing them. You call yourself back to that place. It is a dangerous prospect to make ourselves the subject of worship, because flip back to Acts chapter 12, where we looked at last week, and Herod Agrippa did that, and it did not end well for him. The Bible is far more concerned with the quality of the worship leader's heart and the worshiper's heart than he is with the quality of the music itself. Worship, fasting, prayer, they humble us. As we ascribe worth to God, as we give him the praise he's due, we come back to reality. We find our place in the universe again. We are reminded that he is God, we are not, and it opens us to God so that we can discern what he's saying to us about the decision in front of us. Do you see where I'm going with this? Because we're faced with the decision, and I can think of five things I should or could do to navigate through that, because I'm smart, you're smart. I can figure my way through this. But apart from worship, apart from fasting, apart from prayer, really what I'm just doing is practicing worldly wisdom. So what we do is after being open to God, we discern what God is saying. And discernment, I think we're going we're to be double-clicking on this. I'm, I'm toying with a discernment series for Lent, which I know is like 90 years from now. But um, discernment just means this. It means the ability to judge well. 
The dictionary, by the way, has another Christian definition. It says, perception in the absence of judgment with a view to obtaining spiritual guidance and understanding. We want to obtain spiritual guidance and understanding. We want to perceive that in the absence of judgment. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. We seek to discern and perceive and understand what God is guiding us into and calling us into. Discernment is the way we attune ourselves to God's will and God's ways. Discernment calls us beyond worldly wisdom. Do you know what? I, I, I very rarely let our staff or leaders say, wouldn't it just make the most sense if we blank? I don't care what the most sense is. Wouldn't it just be easier if we... I don't care what's easiest. What is the Lord saying? Wisdom moves us from our agenda to God's agenda. And when we need discernment, here's what we do. When we need discernment, we turn to Scripture. Not because if I look carefully enough, it'll say, Kyle, go to this college, not that one. Okay? It's not always that clear. Instead, what we do is we look to see, and this is why it's good to know the story of Scripture, have the people of God been in a similar situation to the one I'm in? And what did they do? And did it turn out good for them? <laughs> right? Because there's a lot of situations that don't turn out very good for them, right? So then we would want to do the opposite of that. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul compares something that is presently in his moment happening in the Corinthian church with something that happened to Israel centuries before. And he says, these things happened as a warning to us, right? So don't be like them. Do the opposite of that. So we look at that. The other thing that we do is after worshiping and praying, we turn to wise, godly, prayerful people who have either been in a similar position before or have an especially attuned ear to what God is saying. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people fall, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. So you've discerned, you, you, you've worshipped, you've prayed, you've fasted, and you start to get a sense, I think this is maybe what God is saying. So I start to look at Scripture to see, does that line up with what God is saying? I'm, I'm weighing it. I'm going to godly, prayerful, mature people who aren't just going to tell me what I want to hear, but who are going to reflect back to me what God is saying. I have been in a lot of church meetings. You have been in a lot of church meetings. And what do we do? 30-second prayer at the top, an hour and a half of discussion, 30-second prayer at the end, and our fundamental assumption is we're doing exactly what God wants us to do. I don't know if that's the case. I have made a ton of decisions about that in the same way. I've skipped prayer. I've skipped worship. I haven't even considered fasting because that's gross. I talk to other people. I talk to other people way more than I talk about, about it with the Father. And then I just go and do whatever those people told me to do instead of ever stopping and saying, like, God, like, it is, it is a failure on my part if I am talking to people more than I am talking to God about a decision that sits in front of me. I want to discern 
what God is saying. And that requires more than a 30-second prayer. It requires more than five minutes in the car. It requires some, and I would say this, the weightier, the heavier the decision, the more worship, prayer, and fasting is needed, and the more discernment is needed. The heavier the decision, right, the more like life-altering or trajectory-changing it is, it requires more discernment, it requires more fasting, worship, and prayer, because the bigger it is, the more likely I'm to respond out of fear than out of obedience. And, and then here's the thing. So we talk about worship, we talk about discernment, and then here's the sucky part. <laughs> once we have worship, once we have discerned what God is saying, here's what's likely is going to happen. God is going to have revealed the next step and that next step is likely going to require sacrifice. And this is the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Godly wisdom factors the sacrifice into the bottom line. Worldly wisdom helps us try to minimize as much sacrifice as we possibly can. The leaders in the church in Antioch are making a massive sacrifice. Massive. They send Paul and Barnabas away. It's a massive sacrifice, but they take the step of obedience. And, and here's what I noticed. In the absence of worship and discernment, I will make whatever decision makes... I'm going to say this again. I'm kind of repeating myself a lot today. Um, in the absence of worship and discernment, I will make whatever decision makes sense to me, and nine times out of ten, that decision isn't going to be the sacrificial one. It's going to be the one that gives me the kind of visual of spiritual, spirituality without the cost. One of the biggest things that we have to tackle in our culture in this moment is that good things can't be hard and that hard things can't be good. Right? And if the sermon hasn't been challenging enough, let me just offer you that it is not my job, it is not our leader's job to protect you from the sacrifice that comes with following Jesus. If you haven't made a sacrifice of your time or your money or your comfort or your preference lately, you should need, it would be wise to step back and look if you're really following Jesus. If following Jesus is becoming easier, not more difficult over time, it might not be Jesus that you're following. I find it ironic that we have turned a religion founded on personal sacrifice into a religion of personal comfort and happiness. God forgive us. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you are faced with a decision and you don't know what to do next, I want to invite you to worship and to pray and to fast to get other people to pray and fast with you. I want you to discern, God, and ask, what are you saying? 
go to other godly people, read Scripture, what is happening? And then when the sacrificial step of obedience is revealed as it often will be. By the way, I think sometimes what we have attuned ourselves to think is that if all of the options are laid out on the table, the worst one is the one that God always wants me to do. That's not always true. It's just kind of often true. <laughs> um, we worship, we discern, we sacrifice. That is how the people of Jesus decide things. Steph, would you kind of come and lead us? One of the things that we want to do is make sure that we're applying Scripture to our lives. So we don't want to just sit and listen to the sermon and then walk away smarter, but we want to hear the Father's voice and hear what he's inviting us to. And so this morning, I guess I would ask, which of those three areas do you sense maybe a wall or a little bit of a block? So is the challenge in the worship? Um, Is the challenge in the discerning? Or is the challenge that you know what you're supposed to do and it's that step of sacrificial obedience? So we're just going to have a moment of silence while... um, they play, and then um, I'll pray for us. Father, we confess that we are so easily distracted by our preferences, by um, the way things look or sound. But Father, when it comes to worship, um, often our relationship is complicated. And yet, Father, you're inviting us uh, to ascribe your worth to you. And so, Father, I pray that where we have confuse the purpose of worship, that you would show us that, that you would reveal that to us, and that we would be so quick to repent of that and to to turn back to worshiping you and giving glory to you. Father, I pray um, for areas in which we've maybe been lazy about discernment, that we have taken the easy road and not spent the time really listening to your voice and fasting and praying and seeking wise counsel. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to engage in that process well, that we would hear your voice. And then, Father, that we would do what you say, even when it requires sacrifice. Father, we confess that we live in a culture that tells us that we're supposed to be happy all the time and that life is supposed to be easy if it's good. And so, Father, we confess that we believe that lie. And I ask today that we would repent of that, and Father, that we would confess that you are good even when it's really hard, and that you are good even when there's pain, 
And so, Father, I pray that today that we would be people that um, worship you truly and fully, that we would hear your voice, Father, and that we would do what you say. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Jesus says, The one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of him, and they follow because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Jesus lived and died and rose again so that you would learn what the sound of his voice sounds like. So may you discern it, and may you follow him this week. I love you. We'll see you next week.